Good morning. It is truly uh, a joy and a blessing uh, to be here, a privilege that God has given us, uh, that we're able to gather as his family uh, to worship before his throne. We, we started two weeks ago uh, talking about the idea of improving our worship. Um, and we saw that to make any genuine improvements in our worship, we, we first need to really define what worship is. Uh, what is the goal? What is the purpose of worship? What distinguishes uh, good worship from bad worship or successful from unsuccessful worship? And I hope one of the primary lessons that we took away from that study together uh, is that worship is not about us. It's about the Lord. Worship is first and foremost to be a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. Our goal is to satisfy the desires of his heart, um, not our own. To express genuine love and devotion using his love language uh, in ways that are meaningful and significant to him, uh, not just to us. And so we, we talked about three main principles. Last time I won't put these back up on the screen, but we talked about we first need to listen. God wants us to offer worship expressed through diligent obedience. Uh, obe- obedience is better than sacrifice. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. If worship is truly about God and not about us then we need to give him what he's told us he wants, uh, not simply what we think is a good idea. We talked about we need to live. Uh, God wants us to offer worship that is the outgrowth of godly living. God doesn't just want our stuff. He wants us, uh, our very bodies on the altar as living sacrifices. We need to be living lives of worship, uh, lives that express love and devotion to God day by day. Uh, Only then will the more direct outward expressions of worship that we bring to him here really mean anything. Uh, And thirdly, we talked about we need to love. Uh, God wants us to offer worship that expresses the genuine love and devotion of our hearts. God wants us to sing and make melody with our hearts, to draw near with our hearts and not just with our lips. Um, He wants our worship to be the result of his spirit dwelling richly within us uh, and moving and stirring us at the very deepest level that we can pour out the genuine sentiments of our hearts before his throne. So at this point, hopefully we have a basic understanding of what it is God is looking for in our worship. What's a sweet smelling aroma to him? What the ultimate goal is that we're striving for? Uh, But in practical terms, how do we accomplish that? What, What is the incense recipe, so to speak, uh, that, that we need to be mixing together uh, to get this sweet-smelling aroma, uh, that it might come up from the altar of our praise to the Lord. Uh, I want us to talk more directly, not about what it is that we are getting out of worship or, or seeking to produce in worship, but what it is that we're putting into worship. Um, we're going to talk about some different elements that need to be present, some things that we need to be giving attention to and, and focusing on, for our uh, worship to truly be God-glorifying. And I want us to start with one very foundational uh, core principle that's really going to govern everything that we're talking about today. And that is that God desires the best we have to offer. Remember last time when we started talking about worship, we we started at the very beginning. We said, okay, if if, if you were going to read through your Bible and just look for what what does the scripture teach me about worship? You started in the book of Genesis. The first thing that you'd really come across um, 
uh, at least the first clear act of worship, is in Genesis chapter 4. And, and we read this last time and talked about the difference between successful and unsuccessful worship, right? That uh, Abel's offering uh, was pleasing to the Lord. God regarded Abel and his offering. That's what made it successful. But I want us to go back and look at that again and ask the question, why? Why was it that Abel's offering was acceptable and Cain's was not? Uh, read with me in Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man from the help, with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Okay, why is it that God had regard, accepted Abel's offering and not Cain? Well, it it doesn't explicitly tell us here. Um, I don't believe that it's the difference between a a grain offering and a blood sacrifice. Certainly later on in the law of Moses, we're going to see both of those regularly present in worship to the Lord. Uh, There may be some indication here, the fact that it says God uh, accepted or, or had regard for Abel and his offering and not for Cain and his offering, that that certainly there's an element of the heart of the worshiper involved here. Hebrews 11 is going to tell us that Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. Um, But but I want you to notice something else. Uh, In verse 3, it says that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And it says of Abel that he brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Do you notice something a little bit different about the way that those things are expressed? You know, it, it doesn't say that Abel, uh, that, that Cain brought the first fruits or the bounty of his harvest. It says he gave of the fruit of the ground. Uh, all indications are that there was nothing set apart specifically selected about what he brought to the Lord. Whereas that is the indication with Abel. It was the firstborn. And the, the fat portions. Um, and so I think even at this juncture, we, we start seeing this concept that God desires the best that we have to offer. Um, and we're going to, if we see that principle vaguely here in Genesis 4, we're going to see it much more clearly as we continue throughout the rest of the scripture. Uh, we see it many places throughout the Levitical sacrificial system. Um, I, I think it wasn't too long ago, Jason brought an exhortation talking about some of these concepts of all the preparation and effort that, that went into, uh, you know, building of the tabernacle, the, the garments that the priests wore, their consecration and cleansing, and even later on uh, in the training and skill of the, the temple musicians. Uh, there's a great deal of effort going into that, but I want us to look specifically at Leviticus chapter 22. Because if we think about the, the animals being offered on the altar, God's going to give them some very specific instructions about what type of offerings these are supposed to be. Leviticus chapter 22, we're going to start reading in verse 20. Here we read, You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. 
And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord to fulfill a vow or a free will offering from the herd or from the flock, to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. You may present a bull or a lamb that has a part too long or too short for a free will offering, but for a vow, offering it cannot be accepted. Any animal that has its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord. You shall not do it within your land. Neither shall you offer it as the bread of your God any such animals gotten from a foreigner, since there is a blemish in them. Because of their mutilation, they shall not be accepted for you. Do you see the instructions there about what kind of offering they were to bring to the altar? It gets fairly specific uh, about the, the type of sacrifice they were to be looking for. Uh, that it was to be perfect without blemish, e- even without scabs or skin conditions. Uh, can, can you imagine the type of effort um, and attention to detail that would be necessary to prepare this kind of sacrifice? You know, can you imagine them going through the wool of, of, of their, their, their sheep or, or whatever animal they're, they're uh, sacrificing and, uh, you know, parting it, making sure that there's no scab, there's no skin condition anywhere. We even see that they have to, to get down uh, and close and personal and, and inspect some rather intimate uh, and private parts to make sure that there, there's nothing of the problem there. Um, you can almost imagine them getting out their measuring tape and, and, and looking at, at each of the, the limbs to make sure that they're, they're the same length. There's a great amount of, of effort and preparation that was involved here. Why? Why, why did that really matter? You know, do, do blind lambs not taste as good? Do, do, do sheep with a scab or sword just not burn as well or, or smell quite as sweet uh, in earthly terms? Well, no, it's a demonstration of their attitude and heart. God is teaching them the principles of reverence. And, and, and we might think, well, but, but it's about the heart, right? You know, it's, it's not about those outward external things. As long as my heart is where it needs to be, I, I, can, I can worship God with an old mangy goat just as well as I can an unblemished firstborn. Uh, it's, it's about the heart. Well, God says no. <laughs> God says no. If, if your heart is where it needs to be, if you have a heart of genuine reverence and honor for me, it's going to manifest itself in taking great care and attention and effort and in making sure that you're giving me the very best even in the external things. God doesn't want our leftovers. God doesn't want the animals that were, weren't much use to us to begin with. Uh, he wants it to be a genuine sacrifice, something value, valuable, something thoughtfully and carefully chosen, something wholeheartedly given to him. And we see this concept uh, very clearly as we get to the passage that Jared read for us in Malachi chapter one. If you want to turn your Bibles there with me again, Malachi chapter one. We, we looked last time at a couple different times where God rebukes his people for the kind of worship that they were bringing. Uh, Malachi chapter 1 is another clear uh, example of that. Read with me here uh, again uh, in verse 6 through 10. Malachi 1, starting in verse 6. God says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? 
And if I'm a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts? Uh, oh, priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of the Lord that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God's saying, please stop it. Will someone just snuff out the fires of the altar? Will you board up the doors of the temple court? Your offerings aren't just subpar worship. They're an insult. They don't communicate reverence. They, in fact, communicate disdain. Can you imagine if God said that to us today? Can you imagine if Jesus walked in these doors and said, okay, that's it. Everybody out. Leave, lock the doors behind you. If that's the kind of worship that you're going to offer, you're better off staying home. That, that's pretty harsh. Um, that's pretty serious. But that's how serious God is about us bringing our best to him. He, he says here in this context, a son honors his father, a servant his master, verse 6. Later on, he says, offer this then to your governor. Would, would he accept you? He, he, he takes human relationships and expressions of honor that, that we can understand in everyday context. And he says, well... Can you not see how this should apply to the way that that you treat me? Just because God is in heaven and we're on earth doesn't mean that that the rules of expressing honor just suddenly don't apply. That we can offer God our leftovers and and that that will, in fact, uh, be pleasing in his sight. We we understand this concept uh, in day-to-day relationships. If if I want to buy you a gift that's meaningful, I don't go through my house looking for something that I don't have any use for anymore and say, well, hopefully they'll appreciate that, right? That, that's not how it works. That's not how we uh, communicate value. That's not going to be a meaningful uh, gift. Imagine, imagine this. Imagine if you came over to, to my house and I was going to show you some hospitality. I was going to have you over for a meal and you got there and sitting out on the table was all the pizza crusts that I had left over from, from the last month. You know, how, how would you feel about that? First of all, you, you'd think it must be some kind of joke. That, that's disgusting. Um, and what, what if I said, well, why, why are you so upset? I, I just had you over to my house. I'm showing you hospitality. I put something on the table for you and you're not pleased with what I'm offering? Well, of course you're not pleased with what I'm offering. You know, the, the pizza crust is what I give to my dog once I'm done with everything that I wanted to get out of it. Uh, no, that's not an expression of honor. No, that, that is not acceptable. That does not communicate love. That does not communicate devotion. That doesn't communicate honor or reverence. So I, I, I want us taking this, this idea of, uh, on, on a human level, understanding this idea of giving our best as expressing honor 
and apply that now as we think about the worship that we're giving the Lord. How does the time, effort, and attention we give towards worship compare with other endeavors in our life? How does it compare with the time and effort that you put into your job? You know, it's customary in our culture today uh, to spend thousands and thousands of dollars uh, to go to school, maybe go into debt, to get a degree so that you can be qualified to do some job effectively. And, and most of us wouldn't think too much about that. that that's common, right? Well, how much time and effort and expense, how much have you expended yourself throughout your life uh, to being able to worship effectively? If you were to do your job today with the amount of quality and effort and level of mastery that you demonstrate in your worship to the Lord, would you be lined up for a promotion? Or would you be ready to uh, be, be let go? How does the time and effort that we put into worship compare with how much we give to our families or, or maybe even our hobbies? You know, some of us might have invested a whole lot of time in getting good at playing some sport or some game or maybe playing some instrument, uh, maybe sewing or cooking, whatever it might be. Um, and, and those were things that didn't come naturally at first. Think about something that you're good at now and think about your first attempt at it. But, you know, how, how did that go? Maybe even think of something as simple as typing on a, uh, a, t- a keyboard or, or, or driving. You know, your, your first couple times trying to do that, did it come very naturally? No. Well, well what changed? We well, invested a whole lot of time. Uh, you know, you, you didn't just every so often pick it up and decide, well, maybe I should do this a little bit and then put it back down. No, you, you, you spent day after day working on some of those skills, investing in them. Uh, not just putting forth the, the bare minimum. You didn't say, well, you know, this didn't come naturally the first time, so I guess I should just stop trying. No, you, time after time, you, you continued to invest till it started becoming natural, right? Till, till nowadays, if you sit down to, to type on, on a keyboard, you, you don't have to think about, and this letter goes there, and this letter goes there. No, it, over time, you've invested in it to where that now comes natural. If it's some type of hobby, some type of sport that you're good at, to, to a point where it's not just a chore to work on it and to practice on it. Now, now it's something that you greatly enjoy, right? What about worship? You know, do, do you ever find yourself in worship just saying, this is kind of hard. I, I don't feel like I'm doing this very effectively. This isn't very easy. What? What, what do you think God wants us to do about that? You know, when, when we compare the amount of effort and time and energy that go into these other areas of our life, how much should it be going into to bringing God the offering that he wants from us today? And, and this applies in many different areas of worship. But, but have you invested time and effort into worship? We'll, we'll talk more uh, about how we might be able to do that, um, at, at least to some extent, but, but brethren, if, if the level of effort and devotion that we demonstrate in other areas of our life 
has to serve as the pattern for how we should be approaching our service to the Lord, maybe we have things upside down. You know, shouldn't our, our devotion and service and time and effort into our service to the Lord be the standard to be the pattern by which everything else is measured? Are we giving God our leftovers? Continue here with me in Malachi chapter one. I want us to read a little bit further. Let's read verse 11 through 14. Malachi chapter one, starting verse 11, it says, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it. When you say that the Lord's table is polluted and, it, uh, and its fruit, that is its food may be despised. But you say, what a wearisome this is, uh, weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as an offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and bows it. And yet sacrifices the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Do you notice the repeated idea there in in verse 11, again in verse 14, my name will be great among the nations. In every place, they they will burn incense to my name. Why, Why is he focusing so much on that, on his name being great among the nations? Well, I think in part it's because the type of worship that Israel gave to God should send a message to the surrounding nations about just what type of God it is that they were serving, right? So I want us to ask the question, what what does the worship we offer say about the God that we serve? Think about it this way. Imagine that I went out and purchased a gift and I didn't tell you who this gift was for. But I wanted you to try to guess what my relationship was to that person based on the gift. Let, let me give you some examples here. We got some, some chew, chew toys, uh, some baby clothes, uh, some school supplies, and an engagement ring. So just looking at those gifts, fairly easily in this case, you, you could probably draw some conclusions about who these gifts are for. What, what kind of individual these gifts might be for, what kind of relationship I would have to them, how much value I put in that relationship, uh, you know, at least how much value this gift is intended to, to communicate. Think about that concept now as it is, applies to us offering worship to the Lord. If somebody were to come in here and see what kind of worship we offer to our God, what conclusions might they draw about what kind of God this is? About what kind of relationship we have with this God? You know, if, if I'm giving God my leftovers, just completing kind of a religious checklist, going through a bunch of, of motions in kind of a lifeless and a heartless way, uh, offering him service, maybe even begrudgingly, maybe coming in here like the people in Malachi saying, oh, what a weariness this is. What, what is that going to communicate about this God that it is that we're supposedly serving? 
know, the God that we serve is deserving of the deepest passion of our hearts. Of worship offered uh, wholeheartedly. Um, worship needs to reflect the reality of God's greatness. Are we communicating that in the type of offering that we bring to him? And so I, I want us to try to think a little bit now about how do we give God our best today? Right, we don't have a Leviticus 22 for us telling us, you know, don't bring this, don't bring that, don't bring that. Um, what, what is it that God wants from us? Uh, and, and I think we could talk about this on a much broader scale. We could talk about Romans 12 verse 1. You know, our lives are on the altar. All, all that we give the Lord from day to day, devoted in his service and in service to other people for his glory, uh, this concept is going to apply. But, but I want to make specific application um, to the worship that we offer here. Um, and, and I want us to think maybe in particular about the idea of our song worship. In Hebrews 13 and verse 15, we're told, Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. What is the first fruits when it comes to the fruit of our lips? Ephesians 5 verse 19 says, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. What, what's the first fruits? What, what's the, uh, the best that we have to offer when it comes to the fruit of our lips, to the make, melody of our hearts? If God wants us to express worship today through our words, sung with our voices, expressing the sentiments of our hearts, um, what does giving our best look like? You know, we talked about all the forethought and attention to detail that was required when selecting sacrifices from the flock or herd. How does that principle apply when it comes to psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Think about this. How much time and effort does it take to bring a psalm, hymn, or spiritual song to the altar? I'm afraid for most of us, um, the answer is not a lot. You know, many times we, we, we got the songbook full of songs, you know, now we have them on the screen. Many times it's, it's easy for us, you know, we, maybe the song leaders take some time to pick out some songs, um, but beforehand, uh, and then we get here, we find out what songs it is that we're going to sing. And, and the, it can be that the time and effort that we put into it is about the amount of time that it takes for the words to get off the screen into our heads and out of our mouths. Um, I, I'm not sure that that really makes for very deep and meaningful worship. If that worship is indeed heartfelt, it may be despite the lack of time and effort that we put into it. Um, imagine for a moment that we didn't have any of these songbooks. None of these hymns have ever been written. We didn't have any of these slides. Imagine that you um, are among the first people to ever hear the gospel preached in English or any other language for that matter. Um, but all of a sudden you've received the gospel. And as you uh, begin to understand more and more what it is that God desires, you realize God wants you to bring psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And there is not a single song written in your language to offer the Lord. 
Now, how much time, energy, and effort is it going to take for you to fulfill that command? Probably a whole lot, right? Somebody at very least is going to have to sit down and spend some time translating the Psalms, trying to put them in some type of form that we could actually, in a unified way, offer them in worship. Somebody is going to have to sit down and pour over thinking about what is it that we want to express to the Lord in worship? What is it that the scripture would direct us to to say to God in, in worship? Let's read through the Psalms. Let's read through some of these things. What is it that God wants us to be expressing? Um, And then somebody's going to have to sit down and put that into maybe some type of poetic form, some type of meter or rhythm. Somebody's going to have to to put in all the effort to kind of figure out uh, some melody, some music behind that, maybe some harmony. Um, I'm afraid sometimes our worship is like reading someone else's love poetry. We, we haven't given these words any real time, effort, or forethought ourselves. And, and the primary problem isn't the quality of the poetry itself. The primary problem is our lack of investment in it. Let, let me ask this question. How could we read someone else's love poems in a way that was truly heartfelt and meaningful? Because, uh, you know, just the reality of the situation is not all of us can compose our own hymns. Not, not all of us are going to have the talent either literarily, you know, poetically to, to do that or musically to do that. I, I think some of us should be, be thinking about that and working on that. Um, but not all of us are going to be able to. So how, how do we invest the time and effort to, to make those words our own? You know, th- there was a day and age when it was not that uncommon for suitors to read and maybe recite love poetry uh, to their, their beloved. Uh, how did they do that in a meaningful and heartfelt way? Well, they, they would often study and even memorize the, that love poetry and pick out the poetry that most effectively expressed the thoughts and feelings of their hearts and then recite it from memory to their beloved. That, that would give it a little bit more meaning, right? Imagine for a moment that I decided that I wanted to start reading uh, poetry that expressed my love and devotion for Aaron on, on a regular basis. And so I one night, you know, got on my phone, looked up love poetry, Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Here we go. I'm, I'm ready to, to read this to Aaron. Um, How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach when feeling out of sight for the ends of being an ideal grace. I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need by sun and candlelight. Uh, I love thee freely as men strive for right. I I love thee purely as they turn from praise. I love thee with the passion put to use in my old griefs and with my childhood's faith. I love thee with a love I seem to lose with my lost saints. You know, I'm not sure I really understand what I'm saying to Aaron here. Um, What's the problem? Is Elizabeth Barrett Browning just really lousy at love poetry? (laughs) You know, the... The, the primary problem here 
is that I haven't invested any time or effort to understand these sentiments, let alone to make them my own, right? Um, you know, now, now let, let me say, there are bad hymns out there. I'm not saying every single hymn that's ever been written or that's in our books are, are uh, effectively written. Hymns that wording is too confusing or music is too distracting. Hymns that are too shallow or repetitive or, or flat out not scriptural in the substance that they have. But I don't know that we should simply be looking for hymns that require little effort or thinking on our part to sing in a meaningful way. Perhaps we need to invest more in the hymns that we have. You know, not all the Psalms are easy to understand. Even if we could sing them in the original Hebrew and that were familiar to us, some of them are deeply poetic, difficult to follow, and hard to grasp. Is God just not that great at writing worship songs? No, that's not the problem. If we're only looking for hymns that are easy and natural and stir up our emotions without any significant effort on our part to engage our minds, um, maybe we're looking for the wrong thing. And so I'd encourage you to think about investing more in song worship. Yes, select hymns, look for hymns that effectively express what it is you want to express to the Lord. But invest in that. Spend time in that. Um, we have these hymnals now that we're not really using. Take them home. You know, th think about wh what would be meaningful if I wanted to recite somebody else's love poetry to Aaron. Well, I, I should probably spend some time thinking about what it is that I'm going to, going to say, right? Making sure that I understand what it is that I'm saying. Then and only then would that be meaningful. Do that. Invest in that. Prepare your offering to bring it to the Lord. And as we talk about that, let's talk about one other principle um, from 1 Corinthians 14. How can we more deeply engage both our minds and our spirits in worship? Look, look with me uh, just real quick at 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, uh, and I want us to read verse 13 through 17 here. We're going to talk about both sides of this, but, but in Corinth, uh, the Corinthians had what might be Maybe the opposite problem to what we would feel is sometimes the problem among us today. Uh, they were engaging the spirit, but not the mind. But Paul emphasizes the need for both. Look in verse 13. It says, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. You see here, the, the, the Corinthians um, were all about the spirit, Right? Uh, they found a lot of excitement and fulfillment in the miraculous gift of tongue speaking in particular. Uh, but they were so caught up in the experience that they weren't actually accomplishing one of the key elements of worship. 
Do, do you see what he says in verse 17 again? He says, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. They had the spirit, but without the mind, without the understanding also, the result was um, that no one else was able to engage in meaningful worship because they didn't understand what was being said. And so, brethren, both are needed. We can't have emotion-filled, mindless worship or mindful, spiritless worship. Um, And in fact, the two should work hand in hand, right? Right? Uh, the things that stir up our hearts should not be merely external f- uh, fleshly senses with no rational substance or basis to them. Um, and the things that engage our minds should be effectively expressing the motions of our spirits. We need both of those things and they're supposed to work in conjunction with one another that we can all effectively pour out our hearts before the Lord. Um, but, but I want to, to close today um, by, by talking about the aspect of our, our spirits offering worship to the Lord. Because I, as I said, I, I'm afraid um, maybe more often the problem with us is that we are engaging the mind. I, I don't know. Maybe we're not always engaging the mind. But, but we, we might be prone to engaging the mind and not engaging the spirit. And it may be easier for us to see how we can invest time and effort into engaging our minds, right? That's kind of what we just talked about, spending time making sure that we understand what it is that we're expressing in the Lord and that it's genuine. But how is it that we invest time and effort into engaging our spirits, into engaging our hearts? Um, What if our heart and spirit struggles to be moved in worship? Well, I think we see that the stirring up of our hearts is something that should lead towards worship and not simply or solely something accomplished within the act of worship. Uh, Look in Exodus chapter 35, verse 21. Exodus 35 and verse 21. It says, uh, in talking about preparations for the tabernacle, uh, it says, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, And everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meaning and for all its service and for the holy garments. Do you notice that these people did not bring their offering to the Lord in hopes that it might stir up their hearts and move their spirits? Right? This is not a fake it till you make it kind of uh, offering of worship. Uh, The stirring up and moving of their hearts resulted in worship. That, that's where it started. And the worship, uh, this offering to the Lord is what it led to. Now, it is certainly true, um, Ephesians 5 and verse 19, we, we are making melody in our heart. We're plucking the strings of our heart in worship. So should our hearts be moved in worship and through worship? Certainly. But, but, but think about it in this way. Think about it in orchestra. If you've ever been to an orchestra concert, what, what did they do before they start? playing that music. Normally the oboe is going to play a note and then all of them are going to start, uh, you know, tuning those strings to make sure that they're ready. Um, Before they enter into the actual, you know, plucking of the strings, vibrating of the strings in, in the making of the music, they first tuned their hearts, right? 
If we want to more effectively move our hearts in worship, it doesn't start when we come here. And we talked about this last time. It starts by tuning our hearts for worship, stirring up our hearts in preparation for worship. Um, We shouldn't expect that if we haven't put in any effort beforehand to, to stir up our hearts, that all of a sudden the act of worship itself is going to stir them up out of their negligent slumber. Right, that they, these these strings that are old and rusty and not vibrating at all are, are then going to be effectively able to to make that that music to the Lord. Worship should really be the overflow of a heart already so moved and stirred up that it can't be silent any longer. Worship should be an outlet to let loose the genuine passion and gratitude of our hearts. Um, and so let let me close our time today. I know I've gone, gone over time, but let, let me close by giving you three thoughts to take with you um, about how you can be tuning your heart to be moved in worship, to be engaged in worship uh, before you ever get here. Psalm 103, cultivate a heart of gratitude. I'm just going to read a, a couple of verses. I, I want to leave this with you to uh, read on your own at home as well. Uh, Psalm 103, it says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Um, now, now, granted, this, this is in worship that he's reminding his soul uh, to, um, to praise the Lord. But, but you see what he says there in verse 2. He's talking to himself, talking to his soul, and saying, forget not all his benefits. Remember all that God has done for you. If we want to uh, prepare our hearts to be moved in worship, meditate on all the blessings God has given. Take time to remind your soul of all the goodness God has shown. See it in creation. See it in the scriptures. See it in your life from day to day. Let the words of thanksgiving that we express in our songs be an overflow of thanksgiving that has been dwelling in our hearts and expressed in our prayers day by day and moment by moment leading up to this worship that we're now offering. Psalm 145, cultivate a heart of reverence. Psalm 145, starting verse 1, says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Now, now this song of praise is reminding us to do this, but the meditating isn't just happening here, is it? No, he's saying on his glorious splendor, on his majesty, on his wondrous works, I will meditate. How, how are our star hearts going to be stirred up, tuned to be able to effectively engaged in worship? Meditate on the splendor of God's majesty. Don't just meditate on what God has given. Meditate on who God is. Again, see it in the scripture. See the the encounters with God and descriptions of God and how people respond to him. See the miraculous works that he did. See it in the world around you. Take some time away from the the man-created world that that we so often uh, live and move in (laughs) and, and think in. Take, take some time out to immerse yourself in the God-created world. To see the power, the might, the beauty of the Lord. And finally, cultivate a heart 
of love, a more intimate relationship with him from day to day. I think about Psalm 18, uh, as we read Psalm 23 earlier, uh, some of these same ideas came up, but Psalm 18, verse one and two in particular, David says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. What's the foundation of this worship that David is bringing? His relationship with the Lord. His relationship with the Lord that consisted of a whole lot more than just these words that are being expressed here and now. Right? He's able to call God my God. He's able to say, I love you, O Lord. If we want to express effective worship to the Lord from our hearts, live every moment of every day with awareness of God's presence, draw close to him through prayerful living and treasuring his word within you. You know, if, if I were to try to recite love poetry to some random woman on the street, there, there, there'd be a couple, <laughs> there'd be some major things wrong with that. But, but it would be a lot more uncomfortable for me, right? Than if I were to read that to Aaron, why? Because there's a relationship there. There's an intimacy there. Um, Get to the point in your relationship with God that saying, I love you, Lord, doesn't sound weird coming out of your mouth. Isn't uncomfortable, right? That that's something that you're telling him day in and day out in your personal relationship with him. Get to a point where, where calling God my God doesn't sound weird. That you can say that genuinely. That you have that relationship with him. I hope these things are helpful for for you to think about. Uh, I apologize for going a little bit over time today, but I I feel like I might've presented more questions than I presented answers today. Um, How do we truly give God our best in worship? How can we invest more time and effort in worship? How do we fully engage our minds and our spirits? Uh, But I hope I've at least given you some things to think about and pray about. And continue to work through. Worship is all about God. It's not about us. And God deserves the best we have to offer. Are we giving it to him? Are you giving it to him? Have you given your life to the Lord as a living sacrifice? Um, If not, if you're not living that, if you recognize there are changes that you need to make, won't you make those changes now? If we can help you in making those changes, coming to the Lord, coming back to him, coming to him for the first time. That's why we're here. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation, if there's any way that we can help you, won't you make that known by coming forward as we stand and sing?